Hello and welcome to the actual first episode of DFT's Dungeon. My name is Daniel Terry, and I have got a record that I have been wanting to talk about on a podcast for literally years. In order to do it, I didn't want to do it by myself. I wanted to actually talk with somebody that uh, has never heard the record before because I just think that that's sort of a fun dynamic where we're talking about a record that I've been listening to for about 22 years up to this point. Easy to remember because it was released in 2000. So I had my good friend Rance come on to sort of co-host this. He had never heard the record before, and I gave him about two days to listen to it. And so what we're going to have right now is a discussion from the perspective of somebody that has 20 years with a record and somebody that has two days. And I think that you guys are going to find that our observations are still pretty on par with each other's. It doesn't matter how much time has passed. Certain records are timeless. And the record, of course, that we're talking about is At the Drive-In's Relationship of Command. So I'm just going to get right into it. This is going to be just sort of our raw conversation of two music fans trying to put words on something that is ultimately indescribable. I hope you guys enjoy it. And if you're at this part of the podcast, you probably survived the intro, so congratulations. Uh, I appreciate you guys here. I am so stoked to talk about this record, The Relationship of Command. Or is it just Relationship of It's just Relationship of Command. It's not the Relationship of Command, but it is one of a kind. And with me is my partner in crime, Rance. How are you doing tonight, man? Hey, I'm good, man. How are you? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, I've been listening to At the Drive-In for probably like three days now. I've been I've been on a little bit of a binge, and it was really hard because when I first started listening to Relationship and Command, it ended, and I was like, okay, I've been listening to this record for 20 years, so, you know, that's cool. So then I just started listening to their other ones, too, um, by, by choice. Uh, <laughs> not 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 by force, not by force in this case. <laughs> yeah, it's just I wanted to hear I wanted to hear more at the drive-in. Sure. And well, uh, this this was uh, y- you're you're further along than I am because uh, you know, and we'll talk about this shortly. But uh, relationship of command is my first exposure to at the drive-in, and I am a two-day-old baby when it comes to this. That's super exciting because I thought that this would be a lot of fun with the perspective of a guy that's been listening to a record for most of his. Mem- you know, memorized life, uh, or I'm gonna say that differently. Sorry. I, <laughs> uh, you yeah, gotta, you gotta get to shake shake out those um, you know, shake out those those uh, nerves. <laughs> there is a little bit of nerves with it. Yeah, um, it's new and exciting. Yeah, and for a guy that's been listening to this record for as long as most of my memory goes back, there are things about it that are ingrained in me. But what I like about this record is that there are still things that I notice when I'm listening to it that I either didn't pick up on when I was younger or just didn't necessarily have a wide enough palette to understand what was actually going on. And uh, this thing's uh, this thing's weird, man. It's a really, really out there kind of record. But on the flip side of that, it was nationally released. I mean, it was a, mm-hmm. it was a major release, their first major release. It was recorded by Ross Robinson, you know, at the Indigo Ranch, you know, so I mean, it was, it's up there with royalty, you know, as far as, as far as music in the 90s and early 2000s go. It's, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but it almost feels like this is like a, like a, like a, like an attempt, a post-hardcore attempt to become more mainstream. It was like everything was established in such a way around this record that it almost felt like it was going to like, pop off explosively on the radio and they only had like one didn't they only have like one radio uh, one radio track basically well they had they had one arm scissor which it was the song that i think most people when you say at the drive-in they'll immediately think of that song mm-hmm. uh they did release a couple of other singles uh i believe they put out uh quarantined as a single man nah, i could be wrong about that i don't know if it was quarantined or not 
Okay, it looks like the singles they released, the first one was One Arm Scissor, and then they released Rolodex Propaganda, which uh, which actually has uh, Iggy Pop on it. And Does it really? I didn't. It's, this is this is coming into it completely, completely unfamiliar. I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah. The, with the third single, I don't know if I got to that or not. Is was Invalid Litter Department, which that one was actually released all the way in two thousand and one, which would have been the last single released off of the record. And mm. the thing that the thing that blows my mind about them choosing that song in particular is. That is so polar opposite of what One Arm Scissor was, like this fast driving, you know, sort of chorus heavy song. And then you've got Invalid Litter Department, which is like this like slow subdued sort of sort of song that is full of very, very complex lyrics that you're mm-hmm. going to miss. And I mean, it, it's funny because it really shows the type of dudes that they were, <laughs> you know, the, in that time period. Because, like, you're right, it is sort of, it, it did sort of write the book for what we think of as post-hardcore now. But I don't necessarily think it was intentionally designed that way. Mm-hmm. I think I think what this was is that if you go back and you listen to some of the older At The Drive-In records, they sound vastly different than this. Okay. okay. And, I, and I, would, I would argue that, I would argue that their previous records all sounded vastly different from each other. Yeah. Well, this sounds like then it's a band that is constantly trying to I, reinvent isn't a right term, but rather uh, like discover new boundaries for their music each time. Yeah. Yeah. Like sort of go out of their way to be art, like arty yeah. about it, <laughs> you know, and this one was just kind of like they did always have sort of a good, I want to say chorus game because like their previous record in Casino Out is... It's not as catchy as this one, but there are some very memorable moments. And so what you have with Relationship to Command is that they took all of those memorable moments and they put them into a record. Like Ross Robinson's listening to this and thinking, okay, so if we can if we can up their chorus game, if we can get them that 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 stellar, you know, just drop dead awesome production quality, you know, we can get it to boom. This could be the next revolution in rock music. Like everybody mm-hmm. could, everybody might rally behind this banner, and I think that's exactly kind of what it was. So, like, I don't necessarily think these songs are what we would consider commercially digestible even now. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about knowing that this is released in in the year 2000. Um, thinking about some of the contemporaries at the time that we heard on the radio, right? Like, Linkin Park was exploding at this point. And I'm talking about radio contemporaries, not style contemporaries. Sure, yeah. Uh, you know, Linkin Park was exploding on the airwaves. Stained. Um, oh, God, I just had another one in my head that I was like, that, that uh, you know, Disturbed was really up and coming at this point as well. And I think about this, like, when I was listening to this record, I couldn't help but compare it to stuff that I was hearing on the airwaves at that time, because this is right when I was like graduating high school. Um, and knowing that I'd completely avoided this, I was exposed to At The Drive-In, not musically. I was exposed to them because I had, um, I had seen the cover of this album that was like on a, you know, we here where I live, we had something called Record and Tape Traders and Record and Tape Traders was just a place you could like bring your CDs back to or sell your CDs back and then get credit and buy, you know, buy new CDs. And I was there, I was there three or four times a week. Of course. And I remember getting like a sample CD that had this cover on it. And the only thing that popped into my head was that the font reminded me of Incubus. (laughs) (laughs) And... And the, the design on the cover, for whatever reason, there was a Faith No More album in 1995 called um, uh, King for a Day, Fool for a Lifetime. Okay. And for some reason, the cover reminded me of that. That is literally the only memory that I have had of At The Drive-In in any capacity. Never listened to it. So when I played the first song, when I played... Um, uh, Arc Arsenal. Uh, Arc Arsenal, yeah. When I played Arc Arsenal... I had no idea what I was going to get into. I don't even know. I'm going to be entirely honest with you and everybody who might be listening to this. I don't even know what hardcore really is, let alone post-hardcore. So can you talk <laughs> to me for a minute about that? Well, I mean, I can, I guess. Uh, and, you know, somebody out there that's, uh, you know, a, a scene <laughs> get it, god. You're going to get it wrong, Dan. <laughs> yeah, I mean, somebody that's a scene god is going to step in. It's probably going to be my buddy Brian Patton. 
Um, but uh, for me, because I've got a very interesting, you know, I started off listening to Christian hardcore bands, so like my 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 level of actual historical knowledge is definitely lacking uh, in a few places. But from my understanding is you've got hardcore bands, you know, hardcore bands were hardcore punk bands, you know, sort of in the 80s where you had, you know, you had a very, very thriving punk scene. That's not me saying that there isn't one now, but what, what I mean is that basically these bands just sort of got faster and louder and yeah. more abrasive. And a lot of their lyrics were political uh, in yeah. nature or just like society driven. You know, some guys were like, "Yeah, we're just gonna be real evil right now," uh, and then other guys are <laughs> other guys are you know, you had guys like Napalm Death that started off as like a hardcore a hardcore punk band, but eventually ended up sort of developing the grindcore, <laughs> you know, genre. Uh, you know, grindcore being an offshoot of hardcore, and I mean, there's so many trees and different branching pathways yeah. that go with all this stuff, but with post-hardcore. My personal definition of it has always been stuff sort of like at the drive-in where you've got sort of the you've got sort of the punk rock type of songwriting. And when I say punk rock, it's not like these are just straight punk songs. Right. These right. are it's it's more of just rejecting the established method of playing songs. So you're not just gonna, you know, you're not, you're not just going to write verse, a chorus, chorus, verse, chorus, breakdown, chorus, verse. Right. Even though whatever. they do, yeah. <laughs> even though they do that a couple of yeah. times in this record, but like they do it in such a way that it's almost unexpected because they mm -hmm. put you in a mindset and then they take you out of it immediately. And so for me, the whole th this was probably my first experience or conscious experience with something like post hardcore because it actually, it actually. It's funny that you brought up that the first thing you sort of noticed or your first exposure was the cover. Mm -hmm. Because I wasn't cool like you. I didn't really know where to buy music when I was young younger, especially. <laughs> that doesn't make me cool, Dan. <laughs> well, I mean, you're certainly cooler than I am. But the uh, the, the part of it, it, the part that really stuck, stood out to me was that cover artwork, that, that Trojan horse. Yes. Uh, right, right, right up front, the yellow cover. I used to buy CDs at Target. Okay. Because at Target you could buy, you could buy a Lincoln. You know, I bought my first Lincoln Park CD at Target. I bought my first Disturbed album at, at Target, and uh, there was always this record. And I remember because I couldn't drive at the time, so my brother had to like agree to take to me to Target. You. Yeah, <laughs> and you know sometimes he did, sometimes he didn't. But dude, I probably went to Target and I stood there in the CD section with this CD in my hands, just looking at it looking at the back of it, you know, I can't go on YouTube in 2000 and check out right. what the band sounds like. So I, I literally have no idea. And then eventually I hear one arm scissor on the radio and I'm like, and I'm like, Oh my Why God, I not bought no, this. Well, yeah, I, I was like, this is really, really cool. But even after hearing one arm scissor, it was still so vastly different than what I was used to mm -hmm. that I still sort of hemmed and hawed over. I mean, we're talking like, we're talking like at least 15 or 16 trips to target over the course of a year. Yeah, and, and me eventually deciding to, to buy something else. Well, yeah, because at that point too, like you are you're spending fifteen to twenty dollars on a CD. Um, you have to make the right decision because you have to know, like, am I going to spend this fifteen? Am I am I spending this fifteen bucks on a radio single, or am I spending this fifteen bucks on a whole album that's going to be a whole journey? And uh, uh, you know, obviously, in this case, it grew to be that, but you didn't know that at the time. No, I really didn't, and I, and I was like, "Is this gonna be?" Because you know, at first I was like, "Is this gonna be metal?" And at first, like, my definition of metal was how much like corn does it sound, <laughs> right? So like, I'm already I'm Is already this off be the base. Next freak on a leash. <laughs> yeah, like I'm already off base to a certain degree, yeah. anyway. And so it really wasn't until I started listening to like pop punk bands and stuff like that. You know, I was sort of trying to transition away from it just being loud screamy all the time yeah and it was then that i finally pulled the trigger on relationship of command and my friend buddy actually uh he bought it and loved it immediately <laughs> you know what i mean it wasn't like a it wasn't like some kind of weird hemming and hawing for him he's like one arm scissor banging track i'm buying the record the record's full of banging tracks i made a good Purchase. Hey, good, good for Buddy. Good right. for Buddy. Like committing himself to that moment, right? Yeah, he's he's still like that, man. Like he, he when he finds something that he likes, it becomes everything. 
you know, for 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 a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he's always sort of on, on the uh, on the prowl for that next like really cool thing. Uh, but yeah, so for me, I listened to the record and it absolutely blew my mind upon first listen, like all the way through, beginning to end. What, what are some of your uh, maybe some of these things we can share? Because obviously, everything that I have is all first impressions. <laughs> I listened to this album twice, um, and over the course of two days. You know, that's actually the most dedicated listening time that I think I've applied to something in a long time. I I listen to a lot of playlists nowadays and just blast through music, and sometimes I don't even know what I'm listening to. So this was really, like, intended sitting down, listening, sitting outside, drinking some coffee. Um, So what were some of – if you can remember, what were some of your first impressions of this album when you first put it in? You you got home, you had your three-CD changer, you slide it in the top – you fiddle around with the buttons until it pops in there. You try to keep it a little low so that way maybe you're, maybe like a parent doesn't hear it. <laughs> well, that was very critical uh, in my in my development with, mm-hmm. you know, sort of growing up in a religious environment, sort of having to hide. So my first listen was definitely a headphone listen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, on, a, on a portable CD player. It was like a little flat, like blue, like Sony, mm-hmm. you know. It was like... You gotta hold it steady so it doesn't shake. Yeah, it was a Sony Discman. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, uh, yeah, so I popped it in my room, and I laid down on my bed as often. I had a water bed, so I was, like, sort of waving back and forth, you know, moving around a little bit. Uh, <laughs> I love so, that, dude. That is so late 90s, It dude. really I is, I had dude. a water bed. It was a great water bed. It had an auto... We're not here to talk about the water bed. Just, <laughs> just, know, that I, just know that I had it, and it's all good. Whenever I hit play and Arc Arsenal started playing, I immediately sort of felt like I was on a roller coaster. And I'm not saying that because that's what music reviewers say. Oh, the experience was like a roller coaster. I mean, it literally, the way that yeah. that song amps up and builds up with the drums coming in and then you sort of hear like the bass come in and all the noise and like you hear that. Yeah, these almost like sample-esque noises that build up at the very beginning. Like that intro was really remarkable. It really was. And it gets you it gets you pumped for the experience. And once it's like you get to that you get to that high moment where almost all the song all the sounds drop out and you just hear the and that's where the coaster goes down. You know, that initial giant hill, that 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 huge mountain of wood planks that you saw when you got out of your car at the at the amusement park, you know. You're at the top of that now and you're starting to plummet down. Yeah. And I mean he just comes in, he comes in yelling and not screaming, right? Cuz like I'm used to that sort of like or that growled sort right. of vocal and I so I was kind of amped up for that. And then you get the you get the full Cedric Bixler treatment. I must have read <laughs> a thousand faces, you know. And it's but it's got this it's got this grit and this intensity mm-hmm. and this immediacy to it that just It's certainly it's not pretty at all from the start. Not at all, like, dude. And, and and not in a way that it's like this. Um, I, I think this is the place that, that really astonished me. As somebody who literally my exposure. So the only comparison I can make with this album is um, a band that I got familiar with in like 2010, which was Enter Shikari. Okay. Um, that, like, it feels like Enter Shikari is just basically been influenced by At The Drive-In. <laughs> um, that same kind of, like, that, that same kind of... Uh, imperfect screaming or yelling I should say yeah yelling is a really great dis- distinction from screaming this imperfect yelling where there's a little bit of like throat popping in there um, and it almost feels like there was an intent for these vocal tracks to be a little unclean like it's imperfect good keep it yeah it reeks of like one take you know sort mm-hmm. of sort of things and uh, there's a purity to that there is, and there, there's unbridled rage, and it's what's funny about it too is that like it's rage in a subdued yet totally out of control kind of way. Yeah, like that uncomfortable rage, right? Because when you're listening to, when you're listening to metal, you already sort of come into this like, okay, the vocals are going to be growled, right? Or <laughs> this, or the vocals this will are going to be, be edgy no matter what. <laughs> yeah, but it's also it's also just like packaged that way. You come in with the expectation. Mm-hmm. With uh, with Arc Arsenal, I'm just like. I, I don't like it's uncomfortable in a way where like when people are actually mad and they're very upset, like they kind of start yeah. shaking a little bit and they start they start sweating and, and their their words don't come out like completely the right way. And yeah. it's uncomfortable. 
it's uncomfortable and not necessarily entertaining, right? Because it is imperfect. Yeah. And that's the appeal because you're like, oh, my God, I'm actually getting, like, real emotions about this. Yes. And the song itself, and we're not going to do a track by track. I swear to God, we're not going to. But, (laughs) like, it's pure... But it's also like we're also about to rewrite how you think about music, and that is what this record did for me because that's ex- I was who it was aimed at. Yeah, that guy, that kid that listens to that listens to Rage Against the Machine, or that kid yeah. that listens to Disturbed or Corn or Slipknot or Limp Bizkit or all those bands that we sort of thought we were being edgy listening to. So this is like a, you would say this is like a gateway band. I th- so yes, it was a gateway band for me. I think that. At the drive-in is still a little bit too complex as a gateway band, mm-hmm. and the reason I say that is because despite the record doing incredibly well because it's awesome, the fact that it didn't it didn't score well right away with like mainstream critics, like anybody that reviews this album now, kind of like what we're doing, is going to be like, oh my god, all-time classic, rewrote the book and did this and this, but at the time, music reviewers had no idea what to do with this. Sure. You know, they're like they're they're having the, trying to do the same comparisons that we're doing. They're trying to figure out like, what are we, you know, what am I supposed to make heads or tails? The guy's voice doesn't sound good. He's a he's he's not really singing. He's not really screaming. He's he's doing this sort of yell thing. But like, there are times where he can't sing it's, very nicely <laughs> and melodically. Yeah. But he doesn't all the time, and it's weird. You know? I couldn't. I- I couldn't help but think, and this is uh, somebody out there is going to throw me under the bus for this, but hey, it's your podcast, not mine. Um, I'll deal with it. (laughs) I couldn't help but think about it almost like the Dickie Barrett effect on this. Okay. Dickie Dickie Barrett is a great vocalist. That doesn't mean that his vocals are always great. (laughs) For sure. And and they're they're intended that way, right? Like they fit in this really, they they have this home base in, uh, in a song. And the same goes with this, where I'm listening to it, and and I think there's a distinction we need to make between somebody being a great vocalist and somebody uh, putting down great vocal tracks. That a great vocalist doesn't always need to put down great vocal tracks because it's not just about quality. I mean, it's not just about it's about about sound quality. Um, thinking about somebody like oh god, uh, fuck, uh, help me remember um, um, Burton C. Bell. Right, uh, yeah, yeah. Fear Factory, right? Mm-hmm. Like Burton C. Bell is not a great singer, but damn if the dude can't slam some tracks down. Like they just sound great in a Fear Factory song. Oh yeah, no, yeah, he's because like if you listen to Burton C. Bell in a vacuum, you're oh, it's, like, it's, it's you're like, good. this guy has one sound, one <laughs> yes. you know, one tone. But then you you mix it with the electronics and the band and, it's, and, the, and, it's, and like, it's perfect. And then you're like he's singing about robots and he's singing <laughs> like a robot, right? Like it, it like it makes sense. Remanufacture was my life. All um, Fear Factory fans just unsubscribed. Yeah, they but, did. They did. Um, you ever see that video of Burton C. Bell singing in the shower? <laughs> Resubscribe because it sucks. Oh my god. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, that's sort of what this reminds me of is that like it's. These are not meant to be perfect vocal takes. They're not meant to be perfect vocal tracks because to be so would be the antithesis of hardcore in some capacity. Correct. Yeah, you can't just go in there and you can't just go in there and 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 have these these like really 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 big anthemic pop choruses. Let me, yeah, yeah, let me clean it up and make it make it even better. Yeah, I mean it's like doing that. I mean it's like that even with a podcast. Like the last mm-hmm. episode of this that I edited myself, I remember. I did two edits on that. The first one I did was I cut out all of my spaces. I cut out all my gaps. I cut out everything. And then I went and played it back, and I was like, I don't even sound like a human being right now. Yeah, doesn't sound natural. Yeah, and I don't sound like me at all. So it's like, yeah, close app. Do you want to save changes? (laughs) No. And then I just started over from scratch where I was like, I'm just going to talk, and if I say something egregious, I'm going to take it out. Right? Like, And that's about the extent of it. And with this, I think... Even if these were not one-take vocals, they were certainly made to appear as if they were. Yeah. You know, and, yeah, I think there's also, like, the rewriting, like, musically. We haven't even talked about the complexity of the actual music itself, which is far more layered with a whole lot more going on in every single audible second than what you would be used to listening to rock music, especially that year. Because you've got these, like, insane, almost techie, like almost technical sounding like lead guitar 
you know, bits. And like you said, they almost sound like samples a lot of the time or just being thrown in there. But then it's also played with a, uh, and here's a new word for you. It's played with a don't give a fuckness. (laughs) <laughs> you know that I that I love, but yeah. whereas if I was listening to what I would consider to be a technical band, mm-hmm. I would be all like, "That's sloppy." He should That's- have redone this. But in this context, it works. It works. So I'm glad that you mentioned that because one of the th- two things that were flying through my head as I was listening to this was one: the album itself, from beginning to end, does not fit that saleable expectation of structure for an album. Like, I think about albums, and I think about first track is usually a banger. Second track is sometimes a little slow, kicking into our third track. Then you dip in your fourth and fifth being your heartfelt tracks. It kicks back up with six, seven, and eight. And then it ends on this slow and epic thing. Like, that is a huge... That's, that's a very regular pattern for, for sellable music. Or, you know what I'm saying? Like, like uh, widely sellable music. Right. This album doesn't have that structure whatsoever. Um, And the other thing is that my expectations as a music listener, I don't know if, if, if you do this, I presume a lot of people do, you can sort of anticipate what the next note is gonna be. If you've never heard something before, you can anticipate what the next note is gonna be and you sort of fill it in your head a few milliseconds before you hear it on the album. Because we're, we're trained to know after a while, okay, one note leads, this note leads to that note, this right. tone leads to that tone. There are so many places in this album where I did that, and then what what happened in the next um, bar was completely counter to my expectation. Sometimes it didn't sound expectantly great. Sure. Like I was like, oh, that's a weird choice to make, and that's why I liked it. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's really important too because I think that's why it's really hard for people to just suddenly be like, "Oh, I'm on board with this," mm-hmm. because human beings like repetition. The reason we like music yes. is because we remember it. You know that that you, you try. You know the fir- the people that first started writing music tried to do things that were memorable, so that people would remember the songs. Then they they would sort of you know it's that pattern. It's that pattern recognition in your brain. That mm-hmm. says, "Oh, I know this, and it makes me feel good because I got a little dopamine hit because I right. remembered this. It was my brain telling me I did a good job, you know." And this is more of like a, "Don't worry, if you bear with us enough times in a row, this will seem predictable to yes. you." Yes, precisely. You know, like precisely. so from from your perspective, you got a more pure listen than I did this week because I'm I'm used to it. I, I can already li- I can already play this entire record in my head. And so I, I'm still getting those dopamine hits whenever I hear it because I'm like, I know this. I'm such a good boy, you know. <laughs> There's a reason I like this. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm, I, I'm really surprised though that there is so much in this record because even if I can memorize the entire thing, the things that I'm able to notice upon further listens, even to this day, 20 years later. Mm-hmm. I still have that fulfilling, like, oh, I never really noticed that before. Or if I if I did notice it, I didn't understand the context of it, you know. And I mean, I'm still I'm still this many years later, and I I still don't know what half these songs are about. And I'm kind of a lyric guy, like I'm kind of like I love digging into what songs are about. These are so complexly alien at times. Are there any any particular like lyric or lyric sets that jump out to you in this that like really because obviously two thousand you're sitting on your waterbed you're listening on your walk and so if you're not reading the lyrics when you're doing this I don't know what you're doing and it's not jerking off so uh, <laughs> so are there any particular sets of lyrics in this that stand out to you? Uh yeah so there's the song Cosmonaut which is mm-hmm. uh, Cosmonaut is is by far my favorite at the drive-in song because it. It absolutely complements everything that we're sort of talking about with with unpredictability and and, and all of that. And uh, I think it's a song that's about about like the school system and how like schools tend to like try to teach people one way in, instead of like necessarily like you know. And this is not an anti-school rant uh, mm-hmm. or anything like that. But I mean, there obviously every system that's in place on a, on a federal level is is going to be flawed in places. You know, so, you know, it's not going to necessarily account for everybody. It's just going to try to get the mass. This is what works for the most people. So we're going to yeah. we're going to go with that. Uh, and this one is sort of I feel like and this is just my own ter- personal interpretation 
Uh, I don't think I'm going to have Cedric Bixler on the show anytime soon. But <laughs> if I if I did, I will for sure ask him about this. Um, but you know, in in the song, I'm not going to read everything. But what he starts off is he says, "We sample from our shelves, tore a page out of this chapter, defaced the essays in the book that you're reading. We are the leeches that stop the bleeding. Deficit attention program by any means necessary." And um, and that reminds me a lot of like growing up, as I was always more of an auditory uh, learner than I was, mm-hmm. a, you know, like a read the book and tell me what it means. I mean, I eventually got good, <laughs> you know, at that as well, but it was never my natural inclination. Uh, right. It, it, if my podcasts have told anybody anything over the years, I, I'm much more attentive to what I'm hearing than than what I'm reading. And uh, that's why lyrics are like just such a perfect combination of those two worlds, you know. Like it, it really works out. Uh, but there's there's part where like obviously you've got I I, I have a mental picture later on where um, in at the towards the end of the song when he's like, is it heavier than air? And then the sung vocal behind it is like, am I supposed to die alone? And then it's repeated, is it heavier than air? And then it's like, am I supposed to die alone? I visualize like a teacher asking a kid a question in class and the kid's like wondering about like life and existence and isn't really focused on what the teacher's talking about. And so the teacher's just like, is it heavier than air? And he's like, am I supposed to die alone? <laughs> right, like, you these, know, these yeah. Existential, these existential questions that, that in a way cast him out. He is, he is that proverbial cosmonaut like floating somewhere in this in the atmosphere yeah while everybody else is grounded yeah and it was hella relatable because i was in yeah. high school at the time you know and uh i love to it just repeats it's like is it heavier than air am i supposed to die alone is it heavier than air and then they repeat the question is it heavier than air am i supposed to die alone and at the end of it uh cedric screamed is it heavier than air you know which is what like a frustrated teacher would be yeah. like you know after a while um, and again, this is this is, is there, just. Is there some of your some of your school trauma coming back in this one? I there, mean, Dan? yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I mean, we, there were things like that. I remember one time, uh, my buddy Mike was in class, and he uh, he was in Spanish class, and his teacher was like asking him to do something, or no, no. So the teacher gave them all busy work to do, and Mike's a pretty smart guy, so he pretty much already had his busy work done, and he was sitting there reading a book, and the teacher came over and was all like, you know. She took the book, like, from him and was like, you know, you can't read in my class and da 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 And Mike just, like, straight up just, he's like, what is your problem? <laughs> like, what is your, what is your, what is your damage? Like, how am I, how am I, how am I hurting you by, by, you know, if by I read a book? Yeah, if I fail the class because I wasn't paying attention, like, that sounds like a me problem, not a you problem. You know, you that know? must be, a, that, that must have been a Mike thing. Uh, <laughs> my, my best friend in high school, uh, R.I.P. Mike. Um, my best friend in high school, who's no longer with us, wow. he was a voracious reader, and he would he would have two to three books at any given time that he would read because he would read under his. He was terrible at school, right? Didn't yeah. give a shit about the school system, mm-hmm. and he would read one. Teacher would come around and like take it, and he'd just pull the other book out and read it. He had two to three books because he knew they would get taken away. Yeah, uh, I don't want to lose the the. I don't want to lose the 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 bookmark on Cosmonaut though. No, no, uh, no. Because like obviously, yeah, that was those were the lyrics that I like connected the most to. Mm-hmm. Whether they're about what I'm talking about or not is irrelevant to me. And that is one of those things where, uh, as I've gotten become more of a lyric guy, I like to know what songs are about. Yeah. But I, it's more just to find out if what I think they're about is what they're about. It's again, it's a dopamine hit. If I'm right, I feel good about it. If I'm not right, I'm like, oh, okay. Well, I mean, that's interesting. I, I have to say that um, if if anybody taught me anything about lyrics, <laughs> it was here we go again. Here we go where Rance puts himself up to be crucified by the masses. If anybody taught me anything about how lyrics can be used as as instrument, it was Anthony Kiedis. Like Red Hot Chili, there are so many Red Hot Chili Pepper songs where you're like, what the fuck is Anthony Kiedis talking about? But it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter what he's talking about because he's using. He's using lyrics as an instrument at times, and I also think that's the case with with at the drive-in occasionally yeah, on this album, where yeah. where he's chosen these beautifully aesthetic pleasing aesthetically pleasing combinations of words that have a a general suggested meaning, but really what's most important is that they fit that music and that moment in the song so absolutely well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what's really cool, too, yeah, like, you're right on, especially with, like, just how sonically pleasing some of his word Mm -hmm. patterns are. Um, I think it was in, um, 
It was either in Sleepwalk Capsules. Um, Which I love the titles on this album as well. It's the most That's the most shallow observation that I can make at the yeah. moment, is that the titles of the tracks on this album are so, so good. And each one of them, I was like, I want to read the lyrics to this, because I have no idea what the hell they're talking about. It was in uh, Pattern Against User when he's like, hypodermic people poking fun at the living. You're like, I mean, it just absolutely like just that that combination of words and the way that he phrases it. And yeah. that's also like once you read the lyrics, you start sort of seeing the method to the madness because the first time mm -hmm. you hear it and you're not reading lyrics and you're not paying attention to that stuff, it just sounds like a guy is just randomly yelling words. Yes. You know, but then you're like, okay, wait, no. I mean, it's like the first time you hear death metal, right? You're just like, yeah, okay, blast beats, growling sound, blast beats, growling sound. You know? <laughs> they could be saying anything. They could be talking about their their grocery list in this song, and it still sounds badass. Right, right. So this was sort of the same thing, um, but with Cosmonaut. I, yeah, I'm gonna always come back to Cosmonaut here. That's cool. Uh, there's a part in Cosmonaut that I heavily contribute to me being a extreme music fan. And uh, I'll actually insert a clip uh, into this after we're done recording it uh, of what I'm talking about. But on that heavier than air part, he's like, it, you know, uh, is it heavier than air? When he screams that, he just goes completely ballistic and just starts looking, you know, just like starts screaming completely unintelligible. And it's such a it's such an overflow of frustration that I started seeking out bands that 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 gave me that same yeah. level of that, you know, and that's how that's that's how I eventually ended up listening to like you know, '90s bands like like City of Caterpillar and stuff, or you know the the quote old school screamo bands. I think people call that scrams now, uh, but it's <laughs> uh, you know, or bands like Satia, you know, like that stuff was all very like it was beautiful, melodic, complex mm -hmm. music, similar to uh, similar to this similar uh but then all the vocals were just like so unintelligent uh, or i'm sorry unintelligibly they yeah. were intelligent uh, but unintelligibly like frustrating for most people to hear mm -hmm. because sometimes they didn't follow a specific vocal pattern or anything i don't necessarily think people have a problem with screamed vocals i think people have a problem with just the absolute randomness sometimes that can come with them that's yeah. why that's why you know metalcore got really big once it got structured and you started just inserting the growled vocals in where the normal verse and choruses would be right uh, but here we're still sort of in the wild west you know back in 2000 we're still sort of on the wild west of that where these bands are intentionally trying to fuck with you mm -hmm. and or even even if they're not even trying to intentionally fuck with you it's just that their perception of structure is so God, I'm going to use a term that I hate because it's always it always comes with its own joke, but it's so intentionally nonconformist. Yes, yeah, yeah, and it's like, and th that that's the big like sort of weird meta thing that you're not expecting is that this record, suddenly you take a band like this, that is that is intentionally trying to, sort of not conform to yeah. what the standards of music are. But they're 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 commercial enough to where a guy like Ross Robinson's like I like what you guys are doing here. It's very different. I think it's going to be the next big thing. And then he takes that and he makes it. You know, he molds it sort of into this thing where it's like I can I can we can get a single out there like One Arm Scissor that is close enough to what a modern rock radio single would be because yeah. nothing on this record sounds like One Arm One Arm Scissor. I had friends that uh, I had friends that came in and you know. They, they really got excited about the band off of that track. And then whenever they listened to the album, they would say something completely ignorant like, yeah, the rest of the record doesn't sound like that track, but that's just the, ch that's just the chance that you take when you buy an album. And I'm like, dude, the rest of this album is incredible. <laughs> like, the, I mean, the, the, the One Arm Scissor song is also incredible, but it's incredible in a wholly different way than the, than the other ones are. And I, oh, Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. The, sorry. The, I interrupted you. No, you're good. Uh, I'm going to interrupt the, you again soon. Oh, uh, you're fine. <laughs> uh, I'll be waiting. No, like One Arm Scissor is incredible in its own way, and the only way you can tell from One Arm Scissor that this band is not what you think they are is like there's like I believe it's a I don't remember what what uh, late night show it was on, but they they appeared, you know, because they were on a major label at that point, and so they you know they got on a on a late night show and they played One Arm Scissor, and it was one of the most I'll link the video in the show notes for this, but. Uh, 
it is one of the most unhinged performances you've ever seen in your life. I mean, mm-hmm. them just like throwing their instruments all around, climbing up on top of amplifiers, oh, flying I love that. off. I, love of that. I mean, it is just. It is like anybody, like mom, mom and dad are sitting there watching this <laughs> this at the drive-in performance, you know, in 2000, uh, and they're like, "I'm never letting it's, my kids buy that record," you know. It's the music that influences you. Well, and it's cool too because they're not being offensive in the traditional ways, right? Either they're they're being offensive in their composition, and and in the way that they presented themselves, and I know too, like from researching the band and listening to them for as long as I have, I know that a lot of it was because they were intoxicated, like, constantly. Yeah. And that they were, you know, that, that there were drug issues and, and stuff oh, like that. Oh, were there really? There were, yeah. It, uh, have you ever, have you listened to the Mars Volta, right? Yes. And you do know that the singer and guitar player of the Mars Volta are the same as at the drive-in, right? No idea. Okay, okay. <laughs> so. See, this is how new I am to no, this. No, it's no fine. Idea, really? It's, it's fine, especially if you haven't really been listening to those ba- either of those bands actively. How are you going to know that? Um, but there was, uh, there was a lot of division because most people listening to this know that at the drive-in, for a long time, this was their last record. They, they broke up after this. I think the... You can't. You just can't take a band like this and make them mainstream. You just can't. It, it just doesn't work. And I think that that had a lot to do with it. I also think that obviously interpersonal problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can tell you from experience. Uh, whenever you start a thing with your buddies, and it becomes moderately successful over time, and then once it reaches a certain level of success, you start having internal problems. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, obviously that's like highly relatable, but. <laughs> The uh the the thing about this is that like if they had put a record out after this, I have always wondered if the mainstream machine would have got them. Oh, I, okay. You know, so it's it's funny that you make that comparison because I'm 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 you know listening to this and then hearing you talk about like you've known this album for twenty years and I was trying to make comparisons to my own experience as a music listener, and at this point two thousand I was just beginning to really get into like extreme metal. I was a big industrial fan. Um, because I was a goth kid in high school, and the I think the biggest comparison that I can make to my own experience was Stabbing Westward's Darkest Days, which was I mean, and I'm talking about sound comparison, just like an album that from beginning to end absolutely kicked the shit out of me that I I loved, but it was one of these albums that was so personal to the people who created it, and there were so many problems happening, I suppose, in the band at that time that it basically broke the band. And the fourth album, which is the one that truly broke Stabbing Westward, is just an absolute commercial bore compared to Darkest Days, Uh, which I think is probably, like I would say, is one of the best albums I've ever heard, beginning to end. And so I wonder if that same effect is there with At The Drive-In, where this album was such a a conflation of... You can't... Great music just doesn't come from nothing. It comes from emotion. Uh, it comes from care. It comes from opening wounds. And that these guys open so many damn wounds that they're writing this album that it causes its own hemorrhage. Yeah, you're just, you're just bleeding out all over yep. everywhere, and you can't sustain that forever. And there's also like a lot of weird things, too. Like If you look at interviews to, with them at the time... They're very like weirded out. Like they're they're like they hated the commercial sort of side of music so much mm-hmm. that like they were out playing a big open air festival with a bunch of bands and they got really mad because people were moshing and hitting each other and they were like, Our music is not violent. We're very we're very anti violence. You know, like and they took like sort of those strong stand and I don't know yeah. if they were doing that for cool points or or just to like have another way to sort of differentiate themselves from everybody else but they were like you know we don't make music for metalheads yeah we don't make music for you know you know like and and i also i've learned in in time and experience that sometimes you just have to put yourself out there and you can't worry about how you're perceived yes entirely so you know and so you can't you can't control perception in that regard but with with guys that are this creative and um hip i guess is the word (laughs) um you know, the mainstream is, is going to be people that are different from you and have different ideologies than you do. Um, you know, 
it's going to be really, really hard for you to maintain that control over your audience and over your um, your people. And, and so you almost have to give that up. But if it's this important to them, which they seem like the kind of guys that if something's important to them, it's going to be vastly important. They can't just like... They can't agree to disagree. They're just like, yeah. no, we're. this is how we feel. This is what we're standing for, and we're right. And if their ideologies were vastly different than mine, I might have a totally different opinion of them yes. than, I, than yes. I do right now. Um, but I think that a lot of that, like this, this level of intensity is not sustainable mm-hmm. over that long period of time, especially considering that their albums before this were not this intense, like sonically. And the one that they released later on was very different as well. They did reform in 2012 and release another album. Um, which, Are they still together now? Uh, I do not believe so. Okay. Okay. Uh, because, like, you know how it is. You, you know how, like, a, a, your buddy calls you up after, like, five years you haven't talked to him and you start talking? You're like, oh, yeah. And you guys talk about the good times and there's, like, all these good feelings. And then after you spend some time hanging out with them, you're like, yeah, I remember I'm why. I'm a very different person. Yeah. And I, rem- yeah. I remember why I stopped hanging out with you five yeah. years ago. You know, like. Uh, I think that there was like a lot of that, um, and I really did appreciate because when After Drive In split, they sort of they sort of split into two bands. There was uh, there was the Mars Volta, which went to extremes in a completely different way, and then you had bands like you had the band Sparta, uh, which was sort of the other half of the band uh, going on and and recording songs that are actually so the first Sparta record is actually the closest you're going to get to this except for the fact that it is much more subdued it is much more like low energy but so like if you look at a song like uh invalid litter department it's like that but stretched out over a whole album you know uh and of course i appreciate having both of those things it's fun to sort of like separate ingredients and see like which ingredient did i enjoy the most and you know but now I'm kind of like, really, it was the combination of all those ingredients that made it as, as special as, as it was. Um, but, yeah, this... <laughs> like, so what, what is the point of this chat, Dan? Uh, <laughs> it's just, hey, you're allowed to just explore and feel, well, feel that's what, about an album. That's what this podcast is, man. Like, yeah. And I'm not going to give a manifesto on every episode, but like... You know, this is the whole like rediscovery part. Yeah. You know, because I'm just now sort of recovering from a sort of uh, resentment towards music. <laughs> music is work, and so to to re-explore an album like this is kind of a, a palate cleanser, and to rediscover that man, I do love this, and this does make me feel a certain way, uh, is is really 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 strong, and and sort of having a more mature understanding of why I love it. It's yes. because. To me, this album means that you do not have to live up to expectations. You know what I mean? Like, you don't have to, like, I mean, obviously, like, debt doesn't mean, like, go quit your job. Like, self self-preservation is a thing, you know. But what it does mean is that you don't have to, like, for instance, I have been known online as Discuss Metal Dan for five years. Mm-hmm. And so people expect me to discuss metal. Yeah. And yes, there's a difference, though, between that being something that I do versus something that is all I'm allowed to do. Right. 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 And so a record like this sort of is like, yeah, but, you know, at the drive-in went into the studio to record this album, uh, you know, and it was supposed to be their mainstream breakthrough. It would have behooved them to meet the expectation of the record label that signed them. That's like, can we morph this? Can we morph this sort of indie band into a into a mainstream rock band, you know, but keep enough of their indie elements in there in order to, for them to have their own individuality, but also, you know, eventually we can get them to record songs that people are going to like and they're going to have big hits. <laughs> and so I think that like that that sort of pressure of feeling like you have to perform a certain way. Yeah. It, this album totally flies in the face of that where it's like cuz I mean obviously what they did, man, like brass tacks yeah, they released one commercially viable single, right? And the rest of the album is them just doing whatever the fuck they want. Yep. It's funny now that you say that because it's also making me reflect on some of those initial observations that I had at the very beginning of this episode when we were just talking, where one of the things that I noticed, so I was, I was, as I was listening, I was trying to figure out why did I think of Faith No More's, um, uh, King for a Day, Fool for a Lifetime album. Like, literally, visually, they look very... They look nothing alike. But then what that made me realize was that maybe 
maybe this is all part of that established attempt to make at the drive-in palatable um, to a to a, a radio listening audience. What does the font look like? It looks like the Incubus font, right? But their albums, none of their albums, you know, you have you have bands that have the their logos always look the same. Yeah. Oh yeah. And not without the drive-in. Every album, the the font looks different. There is no there is no conformity to, or rather, expectation to meet as to you know this is the logo for at the drive-in, right? Every right. album looks different. It was almost like this one was filtered through trying to to make them, as you said, palatable to a radio listening audience. Yeah. Even to the way the album looked. Hmm. Yeah, and you know it's funny too because I, I appreciate the sort of symbolism of it being a Trojan horse. Yes, yes. Because that that is what it is. Because what happened after two thousand? Suddenly, all oh. of these bands start coming out that are playing in a similar style. They, I, I don't think that there's any bands out there that sound exactly like at the drive-in. Even right. the bands that they split off to don't really sound like at the drive-in. Because um, of course they wouldn't. Uh, but you started having bands; it be more mainstream acceptable for you to have, un, you know, unbalanced song structures, yeah. and 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 songs that are focused more on the emotion and the intensity. And you started you, people started looking for these things. Like major labels started like sort of picking up on like we can actually sell this. And the best part is, is we don't necessarily have to have somebody come in and make sure that it is, you know, exactly right. to our specifications. <laughs> you know, we can we can now just let the artist do the artist thing, and if it works for us, or we can at least understand what they're doing, uh, we can we can sort of move forward with it. Uh, so I think that this sort of, you know, a lot of people say that at the drive-in like created, you know, the post-hardcore thing. Definitely not the case, but they were the they were the first in my mind example of doing it on a on a national level like that and people realizing that like oh i can be creative and still make yeah. it in music so i mean it was absolutely a trojan horse you know new metal didn't really stick around very long after records like because you had like this record you had like the first glass jaw record uh that came out was also produced by ross robinson like ross knew ross saw the writing on the wall with with new metal and he was like, no, the next thing is going to be this sort of combination of like indie music and hardcore music yeah. and these styles that have been underground and they've been around for 20 years and they've been morphing into something that's a little bit more recognizable as music, you know, because, yeah, there's always going to be somebody that's going to be all like, wow, bro, you, you, your first exposure to, to post hardcore was at the drive in. Wow, was your first exposure to food McDonald's? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like somebody, somebody thinks that, but. Yeah. Uh, you, first of all, you can't help what, what your first exposure to something is. Uh, you just can't. You know, it doesn't matter. All these people right now, are, all these kids right now, are getting into Metallica because of, they saw the song on on Stranger Things, and people want to shit on that. But it's like, dude, like that's that's awesome. The kids are finally liking the music that yeah. you like. Like, calm the hell down. You yeah. obviously <laughs> have you obviously have deeper problems than kids these days. But. Mm -hmm. um, you know, yeah, it's kind of a basic introduction, but yeah, I was like everybody else. I was exactly the targeted demographic for a record like this, and uh, it absolutely blew the cap off, and now I get to be sort of underground and entitled and elitist because, of course, I started <laughs> listening to I started listening to bands that reminded me of At The Drive-In, and then I was yeah. like, oh, well, this band that I'm into now, they actually came before At The Drive-In, mm -hmm. you know? And it's one of those things where it's like, I probably would have never listened to a Quicksand record if I hadn't been exposed to post-hardcore, like, way later on. Right. You know, so, like, all of these things sort of come together to sort of enhance my appreciation of it. But I never want to forget the source. And the good thing is, is that, like, a lot of the bands that I was exposed to that that, that sort of shaped what I'm into now, some of those bands I'll go back and it's cringe. Yeah. But the thing that I really love about Relationship of Command is it's still that record. It's still mm -hmm. that special record to me. Every time I pop it on, every time I decide I'm, I, you know, I'm in a, I'm in a relationship of command mood today, that means, dude, that means I'm about to get something done. That's like a, yeah. that's like a fresh palate cleanser for wh whatever else I have going on. There is certainly an agelessness to it, uh, agelessness to it that I think uh, the fact that it can still hold up 20 years later uh, to a new listener yeah. and not question in any capacity at what point this was written. 
um, I think that says a lot about the longevity of the music. Uh, I think there's a lot of stuff I listen to nowadays, especially things that I've been exposed to for 20, even going on 30 years, that I listen to and I go, ooh, yeah, there's a reason that 2004 Rants really liked this, but there's a reason that 2022 Rants doesn't really care about it. Sure, um, yeah. This this wouldn't be one of those. This would be an album, I think, that would hold up to it, um, which I can't say for a lot of other uh, other albums. Um, you know, granted, I'm saying that as somebody who's had very minimal exposure to it, uh, but almost a quarter of a century later, <laughs> you know, it, 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 yeah. it holds up. Yeah. Um, what would you say are your, um, I think about a lot of the time, I think it's hard nowadays to think about albums as tracks, like, oh, rather, albums as whole things. A lot of the time nowadays, because we're listening to so much stuff digitally, and I listen to this digitally, um, it just goes from one track into the next into the next. But we're not thinking about these, like, contained CD units like we used to, unless you listen to it on CD. I don't, I don't I, know. I mean, I, do, I do listen to most okay. of my stuff on CD if I can. Um, what would you say, like, pocket-wise in this? What are some of the – is there, like, a perfect collection of songs that go together that you're like, okay, this track, this track, and this track right next to each other is sort of like the perfect snapshot of what I would want people to hear from this band. Okay, well, I'm not going to be a dick and just say the whole album, <laughs> you know, uh, but if I had to pick, I would probably, I think I think that tracks one through five in the order that they're in, mm -hmm. Arc Arsenal is the roller coaster, right? It gets you pumped. It gets you ready for the experience you're about to have. Pattered Against User does not back off in the speed department, but it gets a little bit more like uh, it, it, it sort of sets like here's this other sort of tone that we have. And here we're actually going to give you a little bit of well-needed melody to 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 sort of cleanse your palate after that 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 that, that intense. <laughs> You've made ride. it this far. Here you go. Here's I mean, yeah, your melody. <laughs> you get out. Yeah, because you get you get, you know, Arc Arsenal is just like, I mean. At some point, you're just hearing all this loud noise and feedback and a guy screaming, have you ever tasted skin? You know, and it's just like, you know, it's it's re it's really, really intense. But then Pattered Against User still has that intense vocal pattern. One Arm Scissor gives you something that you're a little bit familiar with. Sleepwalking Capsule totally turns, turns it back on. He opens up the song screaming before any music even starts. And then you sort of subdue back down into Inval Litter Department, which does eventually build back up. So I would say those first five tracks in that order are so intensely perfect that if there was even a if they were, if this was released only as an EP with just those five tracks, that I, those would be that I would still be yeah. talking about it twenty years later. Yeah, yeah. Is there a specific moment on the album that's your absolute favorite? Yes, Cosmonaut, uh, okay. the one that I was saying. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, didn't even have to stop and feel. Mm. <laughs> let me let me stroke my beard and consider. No, uh, Cosmonaut, man, that part where he's just like, when he screams, "Is that heavier than air?" You know, and then he just he just goes completely, completely off the rails, which is, I believe, takes place in the two minutes and forty four seconds uh, part of that song, uh, where he just starts screaming in like just incoherently. And uh, yeah, absolutely my favorite moment on that record. Oh, well, I would say, okay, so it took me those first three tracks or so to figure out, okay, this is what I'm listening to. I really like Invalid Litter Department a lot. Um, Invalid Litter Department start it, it is that song that when we were saying earlier about like songs breaking expectations for us where i think i hear something and i think i know which way it's going invalid litter department is truly that song that broke that for me in this where i'm like okay uh clearly they want to keep me floating um you know this that song in particular took me off balance and i am in this weird space in my life where I like being off balance because being off balance is like just that step closer. Here's a little philosophy for you. Uh, that much closer to flying, right? Where I can be grounded as I want to and think I know exactly the path that music is going to take me on when I listen to it. And it can be comforting. One of the reasons I've been, I've been a huge synthwave fan for like the past three or four years. Don't know why, but it's because I find it deeply comforting. It keeps my feet on the ground in a really good way. Um, 
this album kept me off balance, and Invalid Letter Department was really the song that did that for me. Um, it certainly wasn't a song that I was like, oh yeah, I could totally hear this on the radio. Um, and that also made me a little more receptive to the songs that came after it. I really like Non-Zero Possibility a lot. I also like that Catacombs, the lyrics don't kick in, correct me if I'm wrong, but the lyrics don't kick in until later on in Catacombs. Yeah, Catacombs is um, also, uh, that's also the difference between listening to digital versus CD. The CD version ends with, uh, the, the, the CD version ends with Non-Zero Possibility. Really? Yeah, so Extracurricular and Catacombs are just bonus tracks. Huh. Uh, but I mean, they're still very, very good. And that's they, really, that's actually really cool to hear. To think that Non-Zero Possibility, I liked it, and it would have been the final, the final say for that album. Mm-hmm. It's a really huh. good, it's a really, really good send-off. I think that if they had included Extracurricular, you know, and Catacombs in there in the regular track listing, and still ended with Non-Zero Possibility, it would not have been a game changer for me as far as yeah. like, you know. As that goes, because I was actually surprised because when I was listening at work, I have, I don't listen to a disc man at work. I do listen on a streaming service. So after Non-Zero Possibility, I go to turn the album off and I'm like, wait, there's still two more songs. <laughs> you know, I was like, that's weird. Yeah. And, uh, and, but yeah, no, they, they definitely and I can actually see why those songs didn't make the album, because the runtime would have been a little too much, I think, for the. Yeah. "Quote unquote" for the mainstream. Take a shot every time we've said the word mainstream on this, <laughs> or said nonconformist. Yeah, <laughs> post hardcore, one hundred percent. So no, thank you. I mean, I I really appreciate getting the chance to uh, getting the chance to listen to it and sort of discover something that I didn't know about before. Um, it is by far not something that I can say is 100% my favorite thing yet. Because I think I think I need to like figure it out still. <laughs> I do think that there is a little bit of value in maybe checking out some of their other mm-hmm. albums too because that that's more or less how I ended up falling in love with the band because I got to sort of have this other experience like two more times. Yeah. You know, um, they do have another album out but it's not my favorite, but that's whole, for a whole different a whole different episode, a whole different podcast. Because uh, I'm thinking about doing one of like, you know, like a, a countdown of like album or bands that had an album that was just the weird one or the one that sort yeah. of stood out. Um, but yeah, these guys absolutely be. I fell in love with this band after I had the context of sort of listening to the other albums and seeing them sort of build to what we get on Relationship of Command. Um, but uh, yeah, when we're when we're done when we're off air, I'll I can give you some recommendations if you want. Okay. Them. Absolutely, so, absolutely. Um, but Rance, thank you, dude. This is uh, oh. so much fun. Like, I I love that I was able to talk about this record for an hour instead oh. of just like the standard five to twelve minutes. <laughs> you know, I, and and I'm sure there's stuff in it. That, was there anything that you in particular were like, oh, this is the thing I'm dying to say, but I just didn't get a chance to say it. I don't think so. I think it's all in there. Can. I just say something that I didn't know until literally right now. So obviously anybody who um, anybody who doesn't make a podcast knows for a fact that like right we're always looking at stuff while we're talking about it yeah. to make sure that we're right, right? Yep. yep. So did you know this is a thing and maybe everybody out there knows this, but I didn't, and it actually fascinates me. That Bixler was bandmates with Beto O'Rourke. No. So apparently there was a ba- there was a band called Foss. Okay. That Beto O'Rourke was a member of. He was a post-hardcore kid. <laughs> oh wow, that's fucking cool. I didn't that know cool. that. Um, yeah, he was. A, he was. It said, um, and this is all Wikipedia. While studying at Columbia, he began a brief music career as bass guitarist in the post-hardcore band Foss, and um, uh, Cedric Bixler was in that. Okay, yeah, that's so cool. I all had the no way, idea. Ba- all the way back in, yeah, all the way back in like what '93, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's really awesome. I mean, it, but it also goes to show you um, that talking about, I think, in my very limited exposure to hardcore, post-hardcore, I think about, I'm going back to the band that I mentioned earlier, thinking about somebody like Enter Shikari, who, the, those dudes are super huge into philosophy, right? right? And philosophy is closely connected to politics. And this just goes to show that something like at the drive-in, 
these guys like Cedric Bixler were thinking about with these deeper lyrics. They were thinking about philosophy, existentialism. They were thinking about politics. They were thinking about the human condition. And the fact that a member of a band that he was with in the past goes on to, you know, try to affect the world in a political sense yeah. is, I think, a really big telling statement about the power of music as a, as a tool in our roots, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and how it defines more about you than you think that yeah. it really does. Absolutely. So um, I think that's a that that's the most intelligent spot to call it for this episode. <laughs> uh, I just want to thank everybody that listened. I know this is the first like music based episode on this podcast, and so I hope you guys liked it. And uh, I'll be back with an outro here in about you know one second. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of DFT's Dungeon. I also want to take a second to thank Rance Denton for coming on and co-hosting this conversation with me. I could not have done it without him. There's just too many things to talk about with the relationship of command. There, I said it again. I said the relationship of command. Have I been saying it wrong for 20 years? I will let you speculate on that. But one thing you don't have to speculate on is weird westerns. See, Rance wrote a book, and the book is called His Ragged Company. A Testimony of Elias Faust, Book One. You guys do not want to miss out on this book. There's an audiobook version on Audible, and you can obviously buy the book on the Kindle store. You can also buy a physical copy, which is what I have. You definitely need to check that out. You can also follow Rance on Twitter at ViolenceObscene. If you want to follow me, well, you know where to find me, www.dftdungeon.com or you can send me an email at dftdungeon at gmail.com. You can also follow us on our Facebook, which is at facebook.com slash dungeon. And you can follow us on Instagram at dungeon. You can tweet at me at dft9000. So I'm pretty much in all of your favorite places. I'm just going to let that comment stand where it is, and I will see you guys next week with another album analysis. Don't want to play down from this chapter Invade the answer, never look at your brain